the thing about wine, and this is why I suppose people find it so fascinating and intriguing, is that you can never know everything. And I think once you come to that acceptance that you can never know any, everything, then the, the whole world just opens up for you and uh, you're in a much better place uh, emotionally to deal with anything. And that is the case with wine. You know, it's an ever-evolving world. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs. And I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Welcome to Spritzing Hour, a brand sparkling new podcast where I'll explore how life's simple pleasures can bring us closer together. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, and today I'll be chatting with Jane Parkinson, award-winning wine writer, broadcaster, and now publisher of her new online magazine, Cherry. We cover a lot of ground in today's episode, from Jane's accidental discovery of the wine world to her determination to make it more accessible for others and how taking a humble approach to the wine world's vastness unlocked her ability to better talk about it. We also explore how and why wine has had place at the table for so long and what are some of the hallmarks of great drinks that can bring us closer together. Finally, we discuss her latest project, Cherry, an online publication dedicated to lifestyle brands with kindness as their guiding principle. We question why increasingly it really is cool to be kind. Jane has achieved so much and is a wealth of knowledge, yet if anybody embodies the idea of kindness being cool, it's certainly her. There's a bit in the middle where we get gushy about acorn. I promise that's legit. Enjoy. Welcome to the Spritzing Hour. This is our lighthearted and effervescent look at the ways that food, drink and our connection to each other is evolving. I'm Claire Warner and today we're looking at the concept of kindness. Can it ever really be cool to be kind and is this the virtue that the world needs more or less of these days? I'm joined today with uh, Jane Parkinson, an award-winning journalist, author, broadcaster and editor of her new magazine, Cherry Pick Kind. Cherry, cherry, cherry pick kind. Jane initially created Cherry for herself because she wanted to live her life, i.e. not feel guilty about buying things if she needed them, but also automatically wanted to choose things that were made by people who were doing something responsible. So hello, Jane. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Claire. Hi, nice to see you. Nice to speak to you. Nice to see you. Um, so it's really lovely to have you here today, here today Jane. Um, but before we get into talking about Cherry and the concept of kindness, um, I mean, I'm just lo- looking through your bio uh, and you, it makes for some impressive reading. You've been very busy um, over, over the last few years of your life um, and I can see your face and, and you don't look, you know, 
particularly old to have this sort of bio so I'm gonna for the people who don't know let's just like give it a bit of a read you're an award-winning wine writer uh wine expert on Saturday Kitchen wine editor for restaurant magazine uh contributor to a range of publications including Square Meal and Decanter regular presenter at events such as the BBC Good Food Show I mean the list just goes on oh winner I have to turn the page over winner of the chairman's (laughs) award at the Louis Rodora International Wine Writers Award, Communicator of the Year Award at the International Wine and Spirits Competition. I mean, goodness me, I feel very lazy. <laughs> I mean, no pressure with this podcast being Communicator of the Year. I've really got to deliver, haven't I? My goodness. Wow. No, this is, I can just sit back. I can just relax. It's over to you, Jane. <laughs> oh but I mean, I mean, this is, a, this is an amazing, an amazing background and an, an amazing CV that you have. You know, how, how did you get into the, the world of of wine and then you know where did you discover your passion for for wine and and then also you know this talent for being able to communicate about a subject that for a lot of people is is very difficult to access and can be quite intimidating um it can be quite intimidating and I think because my uh background the way I when I was growing up wine wasn't really part of the feature as it is with so many people when they are growing up and they go into the wine industry or they follow their their parents or their family or whatever I didn't really have that so um I, I don't know but I'd like to think that my approach to it always is in layman's terms or as much as it can be in layman's terms because I never had that background so I uh, fell in that said I fell into it quite an early age so I uh, studied French at university and uh, so I was posted out to France for a year, as you have to do in your third year. And, you know, unlike a lot of the other people in my year who were like, oh, I want to go to Grenoble to ski or I want to, you know, I, I didn't really care where I went. I said, just stick me anywhere. I really, I, I honestly don't mind. Um, and they posted me by complete chance to Dijon. So I studied in the uh, University of Brookline. So I was based in Dijon for the year as a student there at the university. And uh, while you're there, you're meant to be doing research for your thesis on your final that you write in your final year in French, and you you collect that research, collect that research while you're doing your year abroad, so you're doing it in French. And uh, I was a typical moody teenager, like I've got no hobbies, I don't know what I want to do uh, for my thesis. So I called my uh, my tutor back here and said, I, I'm really stuck. I don't know what to do, and I know I need to get on my research. And he's like, Well, look brackets you idiot you're in uh burgundy you either do it on wine or on mustard because <laughs> i was in the <laughs> so i was like okay mm. you're telling a 19 year old here to do research on mustard or wine mm, i wonder which one i'm gonna go with uh so i went with wine and so for the rest of the year then i spent weekends just like hiring a little car uh, like a little joke car I felt like at the time like a little thing you go pooping off the vineyard and just interviewed lots of producers and like the more I got into it I was like wow this is amazing and I was just very lucky that I was in Dijon which is a very uh, quite a small region I mean relative to the fame that it has you know it's, it's not that big and uh, and I just fell in love with people's stories and how passionate they were about their wines 
And they were so kind to me, even though I knew zilch about wine. So the questions I've asked have been so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> I, I threw away that dictaphone a long time ago. So I just couldn't face listening to it again. Um, and anyway, I just fell into it. Like, and when I came back, I went to university because I wanted to be a journalist. And when I came back from that year in France, I was like, I want to work in wine. Nothing about it. I want to work in wine. So I worked in an odd bins part-time during my final year, local odd bins, just to see if that's what I wanted to do. And it was. And I just found the more I got into it, the more I loved. And so when I left university, I just wanted any job anywhere in the wine trade. And I got a job at the Institute of Masters of Wine office organizing wine tastings. So I suddenly, and these are Masters of Wine, so I suddenly had access to lots of very important people in the wine trade. And I was organizing tastings of some unbelievable wines I mean in the beginning I don't think I realized how good I had it you know the the mm. level of wines that I was tasting because I was masters of wine were taking me to one side and giving me like little tuitions like personal tuitions half an hour before the tasting began and it was just I was so lucky and that has been the common theme throughout my whole wine career I think is that I've been very I've been the right time at the right place kind of girl. So I mm. do think I've been, I've worked hard. I won't deny it, but I've also, I think I've, there's been an element of luck to it as well. Mm-hmm. And was there a moment when you sort of started, uh, you know, getting into wine, interviewing the growers and, and the producers, um, you know, having, having not really known very much about wine, what was there an aha moment? Was it something you tasted or was it a story you heard or, or what was it for you that perhaps, you know, changed your opinion or, or, or made you sort of think about this as a potential future career for you? Um, I, uh, not necessarily one particular producer or one particular wine or anything like that, because I was just, to be honest, Claire, I was just so ignorant at the time. It was just all a bit over my head. But I think when I pulled the thesis together and I listened back to the collection of stories of how passionate they were. It was all about the passion for them. Um, I mean, it just felt like, uh, yes, they do make expensive wine, but then really didn't feel like they were in it for that. Mm. Um, and uh, it was it was a collective effort, if you like, just listening back to those stories. And I just thought, yeah, that's so beautiful. Like, I really want a piece of that. And I was intrigued because it was an industry that, you know, it wasn't even on my radar at 19 that this is a profession that you could move into. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found at the time when I did start in the wine industry that most people of my generation who were just starting out in the wine industry did come from uh, homes that had people involved in wine already, mostly. So weirdly, I felt like a bit of an outcast mm-hmm. uh, at the very beginning in that sense, because I just didn't have that. Um, but maybe, maybe that just made me all the more determined. I don't know. Mm, I was going to ask actually, you know, during that time, yeah, what was, what was one of your, you know, some of the biggest struggles, you know, was it, was it feeling like you didn't really belong or? Yeah, it, it was a constant struggle and it's something I've learned to accept now. It's this constant struggle of you feel like you need to show your kind of elders and people who are looking up to in the industry you want them to take you seriously. So you're, um, you want to absorb all of this information that they're giving you and you, you don't want to look stupid. You know, wine has this, uh, still to this day, has this um, 
there are all these myths surrounding it and people feel it that it's this very unattainable kind of subject it's something they can't uh, relate to mm. and uh i felt like uh i can't remember where i was going with this <laughs> sorry um but it's it's something that people feel that they can't relate to and and i felt really passionate about that that I wanted to if I did anything in the wine trade I wanted to turn it into something that I could make it try in my own way to make it relatable to people and that was very much the case back then because things have changed a lot in the wine trade you know in the last 20 years 15 20 years mm. mm. not sure if I well, answered your question there Claire we talked about like the biggest the biggest struggle for you um oh that's right yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so my biggest struggle, I suppose, was being taken seriously, I suppose. You know, I was, uh, and this struggle now, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a feminist or anything like that, but um, I was young. I was a woman. I didn't have lots of people, family people to back me up or recommend me. Or I had to like, felt like I had to carve my own path and not saying that other people had it any easier but I felt like I needed to prove myself on many occasions um, mm. for all variety of reasons my age uh, my gender um, the lack of contact so that looking back that was kind of the biggest struggle was making sure that people took me seriously mm. and that this is something I really wanted to do and yeah. do and do you feel still a sense of that trying to prove yourself, even though, you know, you've got this incredible CV and you've made all these fabulous achievements and written lots of books? Do you, do you still feel there's an element of that in what you're, what you're doing? Ah, and that's the genius of your question, Claire, because you preempted me of saying what I wanted to say at the end of the last question. And I didn't, uh, which is what I came to terms with, came to terms with and quite a long time ago, is that the the, the thing about wine, and this is why I suppose people find it so fascinating and intriguing, is that you can never know everything. And I think once you come to that acceptance that you can never know any, everything, then the, the whole world just opens up for you and uh, you're in a much better place uh, emotionally to deal with anything. And that is the case with wine. You know, it's an ever-evolving world. You think about the rise of natural wines just in the last few years or, or new grape varieties that have been planted in country because of the advancements in technology and climate change, grape varieties that are suddenly popping up in places they never did before. Things are changing all the time. Mm. And it's such a vast subject that you can never know everything. And that's when I'm hosting tastings, I nearly always start out with explaining that to people to try and get rid of that uh, intimidation that people often feel. You, mm. you just can't. It's just one of those subjects. It's much better to say, and I have said before, you know, in public, oh, I don't know that great variety or I, I haven't heard of that. Or, you know, it's, it's much better to be humble when it comes to wine because if you're not, and I've seen it happen to other people, sadly, then you, you kind of a little cropper. <laughs> yeah, I imagine, yeah, like you say, the acknowledgement of not knowing everything is really freeing as opposed to what you think is going to be, oh, why, Jane, why don't you know everything? Actually, then people are, yeah. more, you're more on a level, aren't you, then with people if you're... Yeah, I don't have that struggle anymore. But, um, you know, that there are different challenges to have, like, you know, will anyone buy my book or you know will anyone come to my tasting or you know there's different kind of challenges but again 
Mm. Well, I mean, it's as you say, it's it's a huge, it's a huge uh, subject, wine. Um, but it still feels like uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm speaking from my experience. When I was growing up, I, we didn't have wine at home, and I hated wine at uni. Um, and I only really got into wine, I think, uh, when I worked for a, a big wine company and was forced to drink champagne and was like, oh, gross. Oh, I should like this. You know, it's a, it, it was, I had to really learn about it and learn to appreciate it. And yet it's so integral to the way that we celebrate or we commiserate or we, um, you know, honor um, important moments of our life. Um, and I, I'm interested to know, you know, what, what are your thoughts around why wine in particular is, and champagne, I suppose, is, is so integral to the rituals of our lives? Um, well, I suppose if you're looking at uh, champagne in particular, I mean, in wine terms, they are like, you know this, having worked for a company that sells a lot of it, they are like, in, in wine terms, the marketer's absolute dream. I mean, champagne as a region has done the most incredible job of positioning itself as the celebration drink and uh that's come down from uh you know royalty and whatever over the centuries mm-hmm. uh drinking it and that's sort of, you know and people wanting to emulate that and so it, it followed through in, into um our uh, uh, we mere mortals our kind of normal lives um so i think it's a historic thing that it's just it you know champagne was the drink of kings and queens and and so we um we see it as a luxurious thing and then champagne has combined with that has marketed itself as a luxurious thing and affiliated itself branding wise with lots of uh very sort of highfalutin other brands um whether it's the very expensive world of formula one mm. um or luxury fashion houses or whatever they've been very careful at their sort of partnerships if you like that just continue to uh champion this idea that they are the epitome of luxury and it continues mm. and when things when times are good and you want to celebrate what do we want to celebrate with luxurious things It's always very funny when we were talking about champagne um, and and the concept of celebration that once we were going through a few recessions, uh, it was like, (laughs) now now we need to celebrate the everyday. (laughs) Now we need to to find a way to just celebrate Monday. (laughs) You know, it's like inverting the marketing plan upon itself uh, in order to make it it relevant. But I feel like champagne is separate in its own way. But wine is very much... um, I suppose depending in the West in particular, wine is something that, um, you know, is so integral to the way that we connect over food. And, um, you know, that that whole ceremony of eating and drinking and and toasting with wine is is a very rich part of our culture. Um, and I wonder, you know, is it is it wine in particular that you think that that makes that such a, a rich part of our culture, or is it the the act of celebration or coming together with with people over food and drink? Oh, I don't, I, I don't know. I, th- I think it can depend. I mean, in this country, we, you know, historically it wasn't our culture. It was much more a European culture um, to have wine, and we've really adapted and evolved 
just in the last couple of decades, I'd say, to make wine much more part of our culture and drinking it with food and not just necking it to get sozzled and that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that's become much more part of our culture now. So we've really uh, sort of, even though we're in Europe, kind of, um, you know, Europeanized our attitudes in that kind of way. Um, and it's funny because in in continental Europe, things have, have slightly shifted in the other direction. So they might not do that quite mm. so much, but we've kind of moved in that direction. But then if you look, even if you look in sort of Asia, you know, tea is kind of mm. the all-consuming cultural habit with your food or whatever drink. But wine has even managed to move into that culture now. And, we've, you know, in high society, I think in India or China, Japan, um, they want to serve you with a really amazing wine if they want to uh, mm. show that they're doing something really luxurious. And so mm. that kind of, so wine is, uh, has been a brilliant, uh, has done a brilliant job at weaving its way through all sorts of different cultures, I think, all over the world. Mm. Do you think that's because of the status of wine uh, or the ability of wine to elevate a meal or a bit of both? I think a bit of both. I mean, you know, there's no question like the, the Bordeaux first growths, for example, you know, people go nuts for them in China and people want to, again, I've used that word emulate. They want to emulate that kind of lifestyle that they uh, epitomise. Um, and what was the other thing you said? The, um, is it about the ability of it to enhance food? Yeah. So uh, I very much think that's the case too. I think in this country, in this country specifically, but the world over, we're so much more savvy about food now, don't you think, than we, mm. we were 15, 20 years ago. We know so much about how things taste, what things taste like, what different things taste like. Um, where they come from, how they're made, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an enormous. I feel like it's really opened up, even in you know my lifetime. Uh, this whole world has just exploded, and we've got all this extra knowledge that nobody had thirty years ago. Yeah. Um, and now, obviously, I suppose with the you know we can go on the internet, we can research anything, we can find anything so quickly, so easily. So I think it's a combination of, of that as well. It's become much more our understanding of food is better and our understanding of wine enhancing food and vice versa is also much more sophisticated than it used to be 100 percent, yeah kind of go hand in hand yeah there's a real uh, level of sophistication when it comes to you know an appreciation of flavor provenance of ingredients yeah. you know yeah really um you know we're not just buying tomatoes anymore we're buying yeah different varieties of tomatoes organic right yeah I don't want my tomatoes from Essex thank you I'll have them from the Isle of Wight you know we're very (laughs) we're getting very um you know uber local now which which I think is is brilliant obviously for the environment um but yeah our our ability to sort of really uh demand greater uh experiences when it comes to food food and drink is is phenomenal better than it's obviously ever been I wonder yeah. though, um, obviously loaded question, because obviously we have a range of non-alco- non-alcoholic aperitifs. Um, what <laughs> role do you think uh, non-alcoholic plays, you know, when it comes to, to wine and, and, and eating and drinking and, and all, the, all the good stuff about bringing people together? Does non-alcoholic have a role? And I suppose in your world, have you seen more of that um, emerging? 
Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I appreciate the acknowledgement of the loaded question, but and I'm not just saying this because you are the person I am chatting to, um, but and I, I'm sure you have lots more uh, knowledge on it than I do, much more knowledge on it than I do, but from what I've seen, it's just from my wine uh, work and the wine side of things, is that, uh, you know, the younger generations who are coming through who are of alcohol drinking age are not drinking as much alcohol anymore. I mean, that is an absolute guaranteed fact, isn't it? I mean, from the statistics mm. that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days they can get their kicks in so many other ways. They've got so many other forms of stimulation. They don't need to get boozed up to have a good time or, you know, do something a bit crazy or fun or interesting. They've got so much more available to them. So um, I don't want to sound like really old here, but um, (laughs) talking about these people. Those young kids. (laughs) But it's true from the statistics I've seen, and I'm sadly just out of that bracket probably that the the statistics often talk about um but I'm I'm like old I think I've got an old soul I'm I'm old at heart um not least because of my love of wine but I see that there is so much uh need for other drinks to fulfill these people because not least because we're talking about the sophistication of flavor people want to taste really delicious things Mm. if they're not going to drink wine they don't just want to drink soda water you know they want something really delicious and interesting and with the story behind it because everyone's now really interested as you talking, you know the provenance so important across all drinks whether they're alcoholic or not um mm. so that's really important flavor is really important um and and just, just because they're not drinking booze doesn't mean they're not interested in marrying those flavors of food with the flavors of their drink they're still totally into that Mm. So, um, yeah, I think it's a huge market. And sadly, with my wine hat on, I say it's, you know, the alcohol side of things is a is a shrinking market. Mm. Um, and the figures, uh, not that I've seen any particularly recently, I'm sure you know much more about this than I do, um, I've seen nothing but growing. I mean, the trajectory is going like this, isn't it? Going straight up. For non-alc, for non-alc drinkers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, one in four young adults. Yeah. So, um, and, and what, what I find particularly interesting about that is, you know, obviously what, what we're doing at Acorn is creating a range of aperitifs with, um, with a, a range of sort of bitter flavors that reference either, um, your European vermouths or your Italian amaros. So there's a frame of reference there that's familiar to people who know about vermouth perhaps, or, or like vermouth or, um, you know, love yeah. bitter Amari. But what's interesting for me is, you know, those that cohort of non-drinker that's coming up who have no experience or frame of reference for those flavors. What are the flavors that they're going to be interested in? You know, what will they be looking for in order for them to have an exciting drinking experience? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's uh, it's a really important market. It's a growing market, and. Uh, from what I tasted of uh, your products so far, it's extraordinary actually how much they, uh, the complexity of them, you honestly almost wouldn't know. Um, like when I was having the bitter, I said to you when I was talking to you last time, I actually almost convinced myself I was feeling a little bit drunk because I was just like, this tastes so convincing. It's amazing. It was amazing. 
Uh, you're very kind no it's very kind Uh, and uh, before we get accused of this being a whole advert for acorn let's (laughs) let's now uh, neatly segue into into what you've recently been busy doing which is uh, your your new online magazine called cherry now is it cherry pick kind or is it cherry I wasn't sure but I, I kind of put the whole thing together so it's cherry pick kind but you tell me Bless you. Um, well, it's the, the journal is called Cherry, um, but it was really important to have the pick kind element, which is generally a hashtag. But on my website, I've got them together. There's a whole host of reasons behind that. I really won't bore you with the technicalities of that. But um, but no, the, the journal itself is called Cherry. And then the, the, the pick kind needs to be front of mind always just to uh, just to keep the conversation going about it because that is essentially what it's all about. Yeah, I mean, I I, um, I think I like to think of what you've collected in the magazine uh, are brands that are what we refer to at Seedlip and Acorn as brands that are born good. So uh, by that, I mean, they're putting, you know, purpose before profit and creating brilliant, beautiful products uh, that are responsible and kind to the planet and people and and also, you know, incredibly well made. Um, So this is a bit of a departure from the wine world into what you're doing. So so why why this and why now? Yeah, it is a bit of a departure. And, you know, you are definitely not the first person to have said that to me. Um, But then I I think I'd try and remind people that although... uh, wine has been my career up up to this point and you know will continue to be I am also a journalist so I have that side so the two go in tandem you know I'm lucky enough to wine is my life but I'm I'm a journalist because people ask me what I do you know I'd say I was a wine journalist mm-hmm. so um that journalism side is always with me um and you know I'm the kind of girl, woman, you know, whatever, who, you know, I love a glossy magazine. I'm really, I'm, you know, I might not be the most fashionable, but I'm really interested in fashion. I want my home to look as nice as possible. I'm quite home proud. I, uh, you know, I love food. I love drink. I, you know, I have, I have these interests. And what occurred to me last year as I was looking for, a, I think it was a birthday present from my, one of my best friends for her son and I was just thinking, you know, they live in Tuscany. So I was like, I, you know, I want to send something and I, I, yes, I'm going to send it mail and whatever, but I, if I can compensate for uh, uh, all of this postage and sending things all over the world, at least I can try and find something good about it. I think that's where it started out. And so I formed this idea in my head and I, I was looking more and more at the, uh, the magazines that are my normal go-to kind of lifestyle magazines. And I was just thinking, I can't see anywhere here that is pulling all these things together. And if anyone's talking about anything sustainable or eco or talking about profits to charity or anything like that, it's a kind of feature in itself. Like it's a special thing. Mm. It's not like just the automatic, let's just do this. And I thought, I'd really love there to be somewhere where I just go to and I just know that everything already has this automatic qualification that has done it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What should I do about that? And then I just sat on it, to be honest. <laughs> I just sat on it <laughs> because I, uh, I was just, this was at the, about this time last year, 
And I just thought, wow, that's it. I was intimidated by the enormity of what it, it might be. Because I just thought, if I do need, if I am going to create this, it's going to be massive. And I haven't got the time to do that because I'm out at a wine tasting, hosting a wine session, visiting a wine region, writing my articles. And I'm like left, right and centre. I'm hardly ever, at, you know, I'm not at home a great deal you know, sitting at my desk. And if I am writing articles, often it's in, you know, somewhere in central London, halfway between two meetings. I'm never here. So anyway, then lockdown happened. And I was suddenly at home all the time. And uh, I just thought uh, I didn't need to run. I wasn't running around going different places. I was home a lot more. And I I had a lot more time at my desk. Mm. And I just started playing with the idea of just explore this a little bit more and do a bit more research. And by the time it got to kind of the beginning of April, I was like, I think, I, I think, I think I can do this. And I think I can pull this together. And so then it very quickly snowballed. But it took three or four months, to be honest with you, thinking whether I could actually do it because I just didn't have the time because I wasn't at home because of lockdown. So mm. it's been one of those positive lockdown stories, if you like. It's like I was forced to be at home. And that basically generated Cherry. Um, which is pretty cool. I'm pretty happy about it. It's lovely because you've, in a way, gen- uh, created a, a random act of kindness for us all by being in <laughs> lockdown, and we get to we get to read the, the the brilliant the brilliant work in there. And I do recommend everybody follow you on Instagram and read the work. Um, but I, I love what you say in your in your editor's letter, which is that um, you're, you've produced this for the growing army of people that seek philanthropy in all aspects of their life. I think it's a beautiful statement. Um, but what, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, it's, uh, I think I meant it's this all-encompassing uh, desire that I feel like myself and my peers and my friends and my family nearly everyone I speak to not that we have this very direct conversations about it although we've had a lot more conversations about it since Cherry was launched um but we all have this understanding like we all want to live our best lives that is such a cheesy phrase and it's a bit overused I know but we want to be we want to live our best lives we want to do the best thing possible by people and it just felt this culmination of you know whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement Mm -hmm. or um, people donating more to charities or um, it's just everyone wants to try and do their bit in whatever way they can and so um, I just wanted to pair it back because what was one of the biggest difficulties with uh, Cherry in the beginning was, funnily enough, getting the, the branding right, I suppose, because what I what I wanted was I just wanted this to be like a normal magazine. I didn't want it to be, here's a magazine and we're really worthy because mm. that's what I've seen uh, in other places. It's just this automatic thing. So I just want like, to look like a really nice magazine. And it just so happens mm. that everything in it is kind. That was that was probably, you know, like I said, one of the most difficult things to achieve, that branding of it, of let's just make this just normal. Um, so that whole statement of everyone seeking philanthropy, I think everyone I've spoken to about it in whatever form we've just touched on it or had a really big conversation about it, everyone wants to do something better in their lives in some way these days and I think coronavirus has done nothing but accelerate people's desires to do that 
Yeah. So I think that's what I was trying to say. It's it's a really <laughs> it's a beautiful sentence because I had never really thought about uh, philanthropy outside of like the financial element of it. Um, and yet, when you think of the concept of philanthropy, it's giving back. It's uh, you know being generous, and 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 you can absolutely be philanthropic uh, without being a billionaire, right? You can you can do that with your time and your and yeah. your attention uh, and how you yeah. uh, how you consume or what you consume yeah. or how you purchase things. So I think yeah, it it made me really kind of sit up and think. Um, I think also you talk about, you know, this this should be the new normal for us um, and that, you know, you, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of the things I, I was thinking when I was reading the magazine is that, you know, this year has been such a stressful, cruel, hostile year, and not just this year, but, you know, the last few years when you think of Trump and Brexit. And <laughs> yeah, yay! Uh, the witch is dead. Um uh and, and and you know and the black Lives matter it's really taken its toll uh i think on on our souls um do you think that kindness and compassion really remain our most powerful weapons against these sort of negative forces um because you know we talked last time about this concept of like is kindness a strength or is it perceived as a weakness and and how can we rebrand kindness as a, a way to fight back the negative forces of evil that are infecting the world yeah i um it's a tricky one because i think historically um people have looked on kindness as being only a certain type of person behaves in a kind way um and uh just as one example of many you know i think uh people who have uh who champion uh, eco causes and you know really championing the environment and trying to limit the effects of climate change and and all of that seen still are seen I think by some people as like dreadlock wearing uh, dreadlock hemp wearing tie dye t shirts you know all of this ridiculous kind of they've really been pigeonholed as these uh, sorts of people and. Um, uh, what was your question again? Does kindness? But does kindness? Do we need to sort of reposition kindness as a strength okay. and a power as opposed to yeah? Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I keep going off. You get what your question is. Um, so yeah, so and I think people often those sorts of people who kind of were uh, previously real eco warriors and everything were really ridiculed as being kind of just mother earth kind of people, not taken seriously and all that sort of thing. Um, and that's just as one example. And so I feel like people, and then if you look at maybe like say the opposite end of the spectrum, like city bankers or anything like that were seen as not really understanding their struggle, which I'm sure is not the case. I'm sure there are plenty of bankers who are totally understanding mm -hmm. of these issues they have. They just don't because they worried. And they're seen as strong in the city, right? And the other guys were seen as weak. There is no rhyme or reason for why people think of those two types of person that way. Um, but uh, it was, I think, inherently in society, we, we've got our judgments of people 
we, we put them in these pigeonholes as being kind of weak and high. And so with kindness, I think people who ever shows any degree of kindness to other people were seen a little bit as weak and not strong. And But I think that's totally not the case anymore. I think mm. when it's changed or how it's changed. Um, but I feel like these days there's so much out there. And again, it's a generational thing. I mm. think it's become... Uh, yeah, it has become much more accepted to be championing the environment or, you know, uh, working on charities on your weekends or on your holidays or whatever. Mm. And because of that, um, it's just uh, society has evolved into it being much more accepted. I mean, for Terry, the, the kindness element of it was because I wanted to find a phrase to... Uh, to encompass not just the eco-green stuff, which obviously is a large part of it, but also uh, charitable donations. If people are making donations to charity or they're, they're doing other things rather than just straight, uh, let's make this from recycled uh, uh, plastic or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there, it, it was the, the kindness can come from so many different directions. And it, I think the whole point of Cherry was to champion all of those rather than just make it eco or green. Mm. Yeah, one, one of the uh, uh, things I've found since reading Cherry is that I seem to now be a, attracting kind brands. You know, I, 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 yeah. I've sent a couple to you. You know, every time I see yeah. one, I'm like, oh, pounce on it. Because it seems yeah. to be that there's more... Yeah. Uh, there's more people who want to produce things from a kind, sustainable, yes, but um, but a sort of altruistic desire to put good back into the world as opposed to take, 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 take or take stuff out or just, you know, be very, very, um, you know, commercial in their approach. But um, yeah, it's yeah. almost like you read Cherry and then all of these sort of new like kind brands seem to kind of find their way to you. It's like you're like a magnet yeah. for them. Yeah, um, and it's a you know it's a it's such a growing number of them. It's uh, and it's really important. And um, obviously, we do champion lots of smaller artisanal sort of items and producers and brands. But at Cherry, I think we I'd like to think we won't discriminate. So, for example, you know Zara has its join life uh, range of clothes. Mango has a conscious range. H&M has a conscious pop shop. They, all these high street brands, which I know a lot of people get very angry about on social media that, you know, they're responsible for all this fast fashion and all this mm. sort of stuff. But you've got to celebrate that they are also doing something good. They're trying. Yeah, so, yeah they're, they're trying to do something. So, mm. you know, they might have contributed to it, but where you know, again, don't want to sound all worthy and all that kind of stuff, but we're trying to champion the positives here. So if there's a really nice scarf from H&M that's in its conscious brand, we put it in because it's they're, they're doing something. They're doing something. Yeah. Yeah, they're not yeah. just forgetting about it. Actually, I was going to ask you, how do you go about uh, selecting the brands that you feature? You know, Is there a process or a criteria that you, you, you go through? Well, the, the, the criteria is, is there something in the brands working that fits the, you know, admittedly very broad remit? Um, <laughs> you go. Yes. Um, and, uh, so uh, it's a combination of uh, reading lots, 
um, a bit of internet searching, lots of recommendations from other people. And a thank you for the ones that you, that you have sent me. I mean, lots of recommendations. And, uh, and yeah, uh, just research, like as any journalist kind of would do, lots of research and my own knowledge of my own and, you know, reading as much as I can, um, trying to, you know, saving as many brands as I possibly can into my kind of folders and it's just it's already I was amazed at the beginning of Cherry how quickly the database built up of brands it was just incredible um and it's ongoing all the time as you said it's just once you start uh it's just it's enormous like how much how much is going on out there and I feel really proud of us as uh as society, I was going to say as human beings, that sounds really nice. Um, proud of us as human beings and what a great job we're doing. But we're obviously not doing a great job because, you know, the planet's very threatened and, you know, we know that. But there's so many people trying out there. There are so many people. Um, and that can only be a good thing. Mm, absolutely. I mean, there are there are so many brands that are trying and they're small brands and they need to be given the spotlight, which I think Cherry's doing a brilliant job. But one of the things I, I do worry about is that this sense of like, you know, the greenwashing element that some brands sort of think, oh, here's an opportunity for us to sort of jump on a bandwagon and, and make a bit of cash. You know, what what should we as consumers be looking for or, or checking out um, so that we can be sort of responsible consumers in, in some way? Um, yeah, it is, it is a tricky one, but I think as consumers, I think we're, uh, you know, we shouldn't underestimate our power of, uh, knowledge and understanding. And I think most people would be able to discern how authentic, uh, a brand is being when it's come to its green credentials. There've been a few brands I've explored for Cherry. And, uh, you know, they've done a great job at putting sustainability as one of their menu headings. And then when you go into it, they kind of do, oh, well, we're doing, they don't actually, there's no specifics. And they Mm -hmm. just say, oh, we're doing our best to, and we are looking at it and there'll be more soon or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you look at it again a couple of months later and it's just exactly the same page. And so for me, that's when alarm bells ring. There's no, there's no specifics about what they're doing they can't name anything they can't monitor anything they can't explain any way to say we're working on it well Mm. that's great I mean everyone's working on it but I think you just want to see actual proof in some sort of data somewhere yeah Yeah. it's so hard to know Claire to be honest but that's been my way of kind of separating the people who are actually doing something with those who aren't is when it's really fluffy broad terms yeah and there's no numbers there's no there's no there's no we're committed to doing it great but you know where's the proof need the yeah. proof yeah yeah where's the tangible yeah proof yeah. point yeah something yeah. tangible yeah yeah so as you um as you look to the future I mean, I don't know if that's a, if we should talk about the future because it's so uncertain. But as you look to tomorrow or the next week or the next month, even, what are you excited about? And also, you know, what what makes you a little bit nervous? Uh, well, there is a future, Claire. There's, you know, yes. 2021 is on the horizon. We've uh, things have things are on the change, and not just because of that US election result, which was very exciting. Um, but that gave me a great sense of joy. I don't know about you, Elias, oh, and I think it has done yes. for so many people that, uh, you know, if there's one good thing, you know, that is something massive and positive to come out of 
2020. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, not with anything to do with my work, but I'm quite looking forward to going out with a few mates and having a nice dinner in, in, in town, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, going back to a little bit more normality is, you know, uh, I wouldn't have said this time last year, can you believe? Like, you'd say something so humble would be, like, something you're looking forward to so much. Um, but that's kind of wonderful in a way, because I think it's made us all really... Um, really take a step back and look at our lives, uh, reassess kind of what's mm. really important to us in life. Um, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward. I mean, Terry is just at the beginning of its journey. So I'm really looking forward to developing that more. You know, we've got edition one done, edition two. I've just had a meeting with my designer in Australia for edition two, which is coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. So, um it's just about consolidating Cherry and just getting it out there a bit more next year and uh, just continuing to, to spread that love. Um, and then we've got ideas for Cherry, other Cherry projects further down the line. You know, I, I won't really talk about them here because it's just, at the moment, it's really about the magazine and the newsletter, which came out earlier this week. It's really about those and really kind of um, making those as, as good as we possibly can, hopefully they are. Um, and that has given me such a buzz, you know, Claire, because this year, uh, while it, it has been, I mean, I'm, I'm so uh, lucky that I've managed to make this happen this year because mm -hmm. it has been, I think, not that I was in a really bad place, but mentally it's really kept me focused mm. um, on something really positive and kept me really busy and uh, when I haven't been going out doing other things and uh, that has really set me up, I think, to be in a really good place to, you know, start 2021 with its really fresh outlook and just this new project is just, you know, I can see it's just at the beginning and that's really exciting to see what it goes through. And I'm sure you feel the same with, with mm. Acorn, you know, it's just um, still new and kind still of new. and yeah. still got so much like on the horizon we, really we haven't had a we haven't had a summer of spritz yet we keep talking about this infamous summer of spritz but we launched <laughs> late and now we've had this summer indoors so hopefully next year we'll be we'll be uh two years old having our first summer uh activation or being outside at least but that's that's what yeah. we're looking forward to well, why, why why do we have to wait to summer why can't it be a spring of spritz Oh, I mean, like, oh, a, a Christmas, a Christmas of spritzing, <laughs> Christmas of spritzing, yeah. watch this space. Yeah. So we had a fun game by uh, at the beginning of lockdown and it became less fun as the months progressed. But, um, you know, what what's uh, what's the restaurant you're most looking forward to getting back out into and uh, eating and drinking in? Oh, my gosh. Wow. So many. So, oh, my goodness. So, so many. Um, I, I think... One that I always associate with just fantastic summer days and great weather is the River Cafe in London, yeah. which is in Hammersmith. Because it's outdoors, it's on the river, it's, you know, the most amazing Italian foods, which I love. Uh, great wine list, you know, how can you go wrong? And it's just, you know, the, the, the incredible thing about our, uh, you know, about uh, our country and London in particular is that the restaurant scene is just off the scale. And uh, we're so lucky. So that is quite a classic one to go for. Mm. But it, it, for me, it's got that real kind of halcyon days kind yeah. of vibe to it. 
you know there's something that heavy kind of almost old school kind of just sit back and just farm you on the river you've got someone bringing out incredible fresh pasta that oh what can be better so that I'm hopefully looking forward to getting back out there lovely and finally my last question for you uh who alive or dead would you love to be spritzing with right now oh my gosh I totally forgot you're going to be asking me this question (laughs) (laughs) well oh well it has to be one person Oh, mon dieu. oh no! It doesn't have to be one. It can be a collection. It can be a few. Oh. We're not. We're oh, not. We're not prescriptive here. Well, you know, um, people. I've always. I mean, I would absolutely love to just have some time with Barack and Michelle Obama. Does that sound really weird? No, I mean, you're not the first person so, either. Is that a really, really no. original answer? No, to it's give. because oh, they're they're God. so cool, and they you I just mean, know you'd have a good time with them. I just, uh, I just find that I'm just in permanent awe of them because mm-hmm. like they're so normal, but they seem so cool, and they they're just so. Um, I mean, their philanthropy is obviously off the scale, uh, but you never get the. They never. You never feel like I think like to believe that they're not. They're just doing it for the good of other people, and maybe I just said that because the U.S. election is just in in my rain at the moment you mm. know there could be so many other people but any famous person might be like is, you know gonna feel like pretty cheesy you know um but uh yeah I think I just think I would just love to spend some time with them and have a spritz and yeah and I reckon they I reckon they'd be into a spritz or two. Oh yeah 100% 100% they'd be um so and awesome. evidence that the Obamas are evidence that being cool is kind. No, being kind is oh. cool. The Obamas, <laughs> the Obamas make it cool to be kind. I think it was both ways, isn't it? Yeah, kind to be cool. It's kind to be cool. Cool to be kind. Here you go. This is a, this is a new hashtag for you. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's cool to be kind. This isn't clumsy at all. Um, um, <laughs> they snappy. Je- it's so snappy. Um, Rolls yeah, off the tongue. they are, aren't they? They are the epitome of that, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I don't know why I've, I've chosen them. There, there are so many other people. You know, I could have said my nana. God bless her. But um, oh, so many, so many, so many. Well, yeah. listen. Jane Parkinson, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute joy. Where can people go to find out more about Cherry? Uh, so our website, uh, cherrypickkind.com, www.cherrypickkind.com. Um, and Instagram, same, cher- at cherrypickkind. Uh, we're there. The magazine is free to read, which uh, was also really important. And, um, you know, one of the great things about it is that you don't have to download an app or anything like that flick through all of the pages you just go straight to the home site and the magazine's just sitting there ready for you to peruse um so yeah there's a lovely there's a a lovely denim suit that I have my eye on in the magazine so yeah that's gorgeous isn't it I love that too yeah I don't know where I'm gonna wear it (laughs) just here maybe at my my desk (laughs) honestly I've I've just um I've just been going to a magazine with this designer like I said in Australia and uh and she's like I 
like, oh my god, look at this! She's only seeing some things for the first time. And she's like, I'm talking her through each of the sections before she designs the pages. Oh my god, I want this! I want this! And then I, I bought, I've already bought something from it that I've put in the magazine from my friend's 40th birthday. Um, amazing and uh, it's amazing can I show it to you I think you yeah go for it we've got time time. yeah of course we have we've got all the time in the world this is the first time we've done this this is a live (laughs) ad this is a tv ad no it's not an ad because I won't say the brand or anything I just want to show you can you You can it's fine amazing (gasps) oh my god I love them what's is it is this a zebra slippers they're slippers I love that Look at that. And they're kind of crazy, aren't they? I but they're made love. Of, this is non-toxic dye on here. So that's why. Oh, oh no, the third bit, sorry. Non, it's, uh, colours is non-toxic dye. Hence, kind. And they I are love. kind of ridiculous. but also They're beautiful. amazing. I feel like yeah. I need them in my life. And I can't do any more yes. spritzing hours without them on my feet. This is, oh they're, my they're on my rider. <laughs> these, like, the fitting oh, I demand them. With these and a spritz is like the <laughs> ultimate it. image. Why go out ever again? It's <laughs> <laughs> at home, baby. You've got to be wearing exactly, me. Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> Jane, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending the morning with us spritzing and uh, everybody needs to rush out and read Cherry and buy everything in it because uh, that's the way we're going to make the world a better place. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Speak to you soon. Thanks, Claire.